how do we go about interpreting the Bible? That's a rather important question, but we might want to start with a question prior to that, which is, do we need to interpret the Bible? Some people get quite suspicious when we start talking about biblical interpretation. Somebody once said to me, oh yes, interpretation. That's when you make the Bible say things that it doesn't actually say. But when you think about it for a minute, we do need to take the question of interpretation seriously for several reasons. A few years ago, I heard a quite well-respected church leader saying, I don't interpret the Bible, I simply tell you what it says. Now, I know what you feel about that statement, but that begins to make me feel a bit suspicious because clearly different Christians in different times and in different traditions today interpret the Bible differently. Now, if somebody's saying to me, oh, I'm not interpreting the Bible, I'm just telling you what it says, it seems to me they're claiming that their interpretation of the Bible is the only possible one. So there's a reason for thinking about interpretation because different people have read the Bible in different ways. Here's a second reason for thinking about interpretation. Jesus himself did it. When you read the accounts in the New Testament of Jesus' debates with the Pharisees, they're not debating whether or not you should follow what their scriptures, their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, says or not. There's no sense in which Jesus is setting aside the Old Testament. In fact, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, he says in Matthew 5, I've come to fulfill it. His disagreement was not about whether we should pay attention to scripture, but how we should interpret it. And he disagreed with the Pharisees in the way they interpreted the principle of the Sabbath, for example. So differences of interpretation are really key. And that leads to a third reason that we need to consider this question. You can never separate questions of the authority of the Bible from questions of the interpretation of the Bible. If we say, well, God says such and such in Scripture, so therefore we ought to do it, you can only make sense of that if you thought about, well, what exactly does that mean? Much of the Bible was written in a very different cultural, social, philosophical, historical context from the context that we live in today. So we do actually have to think carefully about how do we interpret the Bible. Okay, so we need to do it. How are we going to approach it? And I'd like to suggest four things we need to think about in interpreting the Bible. I'm not suggesting these are substitutes for actually listening to God and for having an open heart to hear what the Spirit is saying to us, what he's, what he's laying on our hearts now and, and, and the priorities he might be giving us. And what I'm saying is that as we think about that, as we open our Bibles expecting God to speak to us, these are the kinds of things that we should think about. And in fact, they're the kinds of things we think about when we read any text. Scripture isn't less than human writing. It may be a lot more than that. It may be God speaking to us through human writings, but it isn't any less than the writings that we have from people. So the kinds of things we need to think about when we read other texts are the same kinds of things that we need to think about when reading the Bible. And they come under four headings. So the first of our four principles, our things to focus on, is to ask this question. What kind of writing am I looking at? What kind of writing? Now, sometimes uh, that's described as the genre. What genre of literature am I considering here? Actually, when we think about kind of writing, it's something we do all the time. Uh, we uh, have a postman who delivers mail to our front door and our dog, Barney, always barks when the postman comes. He's very excited, so we know that something's arrived. And when, I, when I hear Barney barking and I go to the door and I pick up a letter, I automatically 
begin to think what kind of writing it is, what kind of letter it is. If it's a third A4 and it's got a window in it and it's got my address left aligned, I think, oh, this is a bank manager kind of letter. And I might just put that aside and think about it later. If it, it's a square envelope and it's coloured and it's got my name written in hand, I think, oh, this is a, a this is a personal letter and I might enthusiastically open it. These are the things we do all the time. When we think about films, we think about genres of films. Is this a disaster movie? Is this a historical film? Is it a romantic drama? When we think about literature, we do the same. Is this a novel? Is this a history? Is this a, is this a, a political uh, book? So this is something we do quite naturally. But for some reason, we often switch off when we open our Bibles, thinking about what kind of writing it is. But you don't, again, need to think very hard to see how important this is. In Isaiah 53, uh, the prophet says, promises, uh, speaking on God's behalf, when you go through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the fire, it will not burn you. What kind of writing is that? Is God telling us he's going to give us swimming lessons? I don't think so. I think he's using a poetic image and therefore we read it poetically. And thinking about kind of writing is especially important at some of the difficult texts that we have, and particularly at the beginning and the end of the Bible. All sorts of controversies around Genesis and creation, and really those would be solved if people thought a little bit more carefully about what kind of writing Genesis chapter 1 is. When we read the book of Revelation, one of my favourite texts in the New Testament, as you might know, um, at the beginning, John has a vision of Jesus. He hears a voice like many waters, and then he turns to see the voice. He can't actually see a voice, but that's what he does. And he sees this figure of Jesus, and it's a very strange picture. If you try and draw it literally, you get some very odd things happening. Uh, you get someone who looks like an old man because he's got long white hair. He looks a bit like an angel because he's got a gold sash around his waist. He's got feet or legs made of bronze that, that, that's been heated in a fire. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, here's the interesting thing. Is that literally what John saw? Is he trying to describe something physical or is he doing something else? Is he telling us that Jesus is the one who helps us to see what God looks like with the white hair? Is he, is he telling us that Jesus is a messenger from God that we need to listen to? The gold band around his chest is the, uh, what, what angels wore in Daniel, the book of Daniel. He's got feet like burnished bronze. What does that mean? Does it symbolise the fact that he's someone who we can trust, who's reliable, who's got firm feet, as it were, his feet firmly on the ground? With the sword coming out of his mouth, is he actually telling us it's the words of Jesus are the things that can actually make the difference and have power? That makes a lot more sense of this text. Now, we've got a challenge when we think about kind of writing, because nobody gave us a, a handbook describing different kinds of writing and how you'd recognise them. We have to learn by experience. And sometimes we're challenged because we don't have experience of all the different kinds of writing. So sometimes we need to ask for some help. One thing is very striking about different kinds of writing is that very often in the Gospels, those listening to Jesus, actually they didn't struggle with the same things we struggle with. When in Mark chapter 13, Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and he starts talking about the destruction of the temple and he says that the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn to blood and the stars will fall from heaven, uh, the disciples go, great, we understand that, that's fine, thank you. They were clearly familiar with this kind of writing, with this way of talking from the Old Testament. 
And the really funny thing is when earlier on in Mark chapter four, when Jesus is teaching us parables, he says, a sower went out to sow and he scattered the seed and there were four different kinds and some fell on the path and some fell amongst the weeds and were strangled. Some went on the rocky ground and, and dried up in the sun, but some fell on the good soil. And we think, oh, we understand that. That's a parable of Jesus. We know what he's talking about. But the disciples said, Jesus, what is this? We've got no idea what you're talking about because they weren't familiar with that kind of writing. So that's the first question we need to ask. What kind of writing is this? And therefore, how do I interpret it? How does the, the kind of writing need to be read in a way that makes sense and communicates? The second question we need to ask to help us to interpret the Bible well is ask a question of context. What was the context in which the text we're looking at was written? What was the world like then? In particular, how would the person writing have expected their, what they wrote to be understood, how would the first listeners have actually heard it? Now, this is a quite an important question, but it is a discipline because it's recognising that Scripture wasn't in the first instance written to us, even if it was written for us. When we're reading a passage of Scripture, for instance, we're reading what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, what we're trying to do is to hear what God is saying to us through what Paul was saying to the Christians in Corinth. So we do need to think carefully about what, in this case, Paul was meaning and how the Corinthians would have heard that. What was the context they're in? And what would the words mean in that context? And there's a couple of really important examples, uh, quite common examples, uh, texts that we're familiar with, where actually it makes all the difference. For example, Take the parable that we call the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Now, what's the story about? Uh, a king, a man goes on a journey and as he goes away, he entrusts talents to his servants, different amounts to each one. And most people read that and they say, oh, I see. OK, so that's a picture of God who's, as it were, God on a journey. He's gone away until Jesus comes again. And in the meantime, he's given us talents. Well, I've got a talent. Uh, I can play the guitar or I can sing or I'm good at doing the accounts or I can encourage people. So we understand we should use those talents and put them to good use. And then when the master comes away, from, comes back from his journey at the end of our lives or when Jesus returns, he can see how we've used our talents. But when we think for a moment about the context in which Jesus was teaching, that cannot be what the text means. Because you see, the word talent doesn't mean in that context ability, a natural ability. What it means is a talentum. A talentum was a Roman word for half a kilogram of silver. It was a fortune. It was worth an awful lot of money. When we recognise that, we realise, hang on a second, is my ability to play the guitar or sing or do the accounts or encourage people, is that really the equivalent to an enormous costly treasure that God has given me to use? I don't think it is. And when we recognise that, we realise, well, where else does Jesus talk about a costly treasure? He talks about it a few chapters earlier in uh, Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of God is like a treasure that a man digs up in a field, or it's like a pearl of great price. When Jesus is referring to this man giving his servants 
this enormous amount of silver, or in or some translations uh, describe it as gold, this enormous treasure, he's actually talking about the costly treasure of the kingdom that he's given to us. So he's not, he's not asking about how are we going to use your abilities to help people. We should do that, that's, that's sure, but that's not what the parable is about. Here's another example. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul talks about the return of Jesus as his parousia, his coming. And again, if we read that in context, we might recognise that Thessalonica, where he's writing to, they were part of the Roman Empire. When the emperor came to visit, that was called his parousia. And when the emperor came to a city, the elders left the city, they went out and they went to meet the emperor, and then they turned round and they came in to enter the city. And Paul uses exactly that illustration, that language, to talk about what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. Jesus, as it were, the emperor across the seas, one day he will return to city earth. And we, who've been recognising his authority and who've been exercising his authority in our ministries, we will, as it were, go out of the gates of city earth to meet him. So Jesus is coming to city earth. We come out to meet him. What happens? We turn round and we join with him to re-enter into city earth. Because, of course, that's what would happen with the emperor. The emperor wouldn't turn around and go away. So in that text, when Paul says, we will be with the Lord forever, he isn't talking about, talking about us being snatched up to heaven in some sort of rapture. He's talking about us coming with Jesus to reign with him forever on the earth. And that's the language that he uses elsewhere. One last example where we need to think about the context. Again, a very well-known verse in the book of Revelation in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Jesus says to the Christians in Laodicea through John says, I know your works. I know that you are neither hot nor cold. Because you are neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. What does that mean? Well, we often think hot means enthusiastic. Cold means indifferent. Cold means indifferent. And lukewarm in the middle means, well, neither here nor there. Neither really excited nor really antipathetic, but just sort of wishy-washy. And we, say, we think that means Jesus doesn't want us to be wishy-washy. Well, I don't think Jesus does want us to be wishy-washy. But again, what did it mean in context? What would it have meant to those in Laodicea who are reading this? Well, it would have meant something very specific. Colossae, down the valley, had cold springs. And cold springs were good for something, for refreshing people. Hierapolis, across the valley from Laodicea, they had hot springs. And hot water is good for something. It's refreshing. It's renewing. It brings healing. The Laodiceans, they didn't have cold springs like the, like the Colossi, and they didn't have hot springs like Hierapolis. They, their water came down an aqueduct from a hot spring, but by the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. Lukewarm water is good for nothing. It doesn't actually do anything useful. You have to let it get cold, and then you can use it. And that's what Jesus was saying to the Christians in Laodicea. They weren't rebu he wasn't rebuking them for being unenthusiastic or indifferent. He was saying... Your faith isn't actually doing anything. It's not good for anything. It's not bringing people refreshment and it's not bringing them healing. He was focusing on their deeds, not on their faith. So there's a second question to ask. What is the context in which this writing has been shared? And that's going to help us to understand what God is saying to us. So there's the first two of our four principles or, or things to think about when interpreting the Bible. What kind of writing is this? What is its context? What was the context of the first 
writers and the first hearers. Now, you may be already be thinking, do you know, I'm going to need a bit of help with this and I can't do it on my own. And that's absolutely right. You can't do it on your own. None of us should be doing this on our own. Scripture is primarily being given as a gift to the church of God, to the whole people of God, together, to read together. That's why Paul says at one point to Timothy, do not neglect the public reading of the scripture. We should be thinking about this together. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, John says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those, plural, who hear and keep these words. In other words, uh, John is imagining not that people will read this text on their own, but they'd be reading it together and we'd be helping one another. And that means nowadays we can help each other through books, through podcasts, through broadcasts, all sorts of things. We can work together and uh, gain insights and share insights into how we've read these texts. So it is a corporate exercise. Kind of writing, context. Third thing to look at is content. What's the content? What's actually the text actually saying? Now, that may seem like a really strange thing to uh, ask, but it's amazing how often we can read something and then think it says the opposite to what it does. Actually, this is a well-known psychological phenomenon. It's called confirmation bias. When we read something and we've already decided what we think it's going to say, it's actually very hard to look at what the text actually says and recognise that it's different from what we expected. Here's a, a, a common example. I'm again looking at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. And Jesus here has moved on from his discussion about the destruction of the temple and the sun and the moon dark and all that kind of stuff. And now he's looking forward to the end of the age and his return, his parousia. And he says this, about that day or hour, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about it. What would happen until the flood came and took them all away? That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. So here's the question. Do you want to be left behind? Well, let's just look carefully at what Jesus says. Let's look at the content. Let's look at the actual words. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. In the days of Noah, people didn't know what was happening until the flood came and took them all away. And in the same way, on the days of the coming of the Son of Man, two men will be in field, one will be left, and one will be taken away. In the days of Noah, who was taken away? The goodies or the baddies? The answer is the baddies. Being taken away is an image of judgment, being taken away in the flood. In the days of the coming of the Son of Man, who's going to be left and who's going to be taken away? And the answer is the baddies. Taking away is an image of judgment. That's why I want to be left behind. Here's another example from Paul's writing of just reading carefully what he says. 1 Corinthians 11, he has a long and a rather complicated argument, starting with talking about who's the head of who, and women, and headdresses, and glory, and angels, and all sorts of obscure things. It is puzzling, but just pay attention to where Paul finishes his argument. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 15. 
for long hair is given to a woman in place of a covering. If anybody wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice nor the churches of God. So whatever Paul is teaching about women praying and prophesying in assembly, some people seem to think they ought to have their heads covered, some people think they haven't. Paul's pointing out that women already have a head covering, it was given to them by God, and it is their hair. Therefore, Paul's argument is women should be able to pray and prophesy in the assembly. And that seems to me to be part of Paul's argument for saying women should play a full part in everything that happens in public worship. Then he goes on in chapter 12 and talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And of course, there's no distinction between men and women as to who's given which gift. So we need to be careful to read what the text actually says rather than reading what we think it's going to say. We need to pay attention to the content as well as the context, as well as the kind of writing. So there's our first three principles on how to interpret scripture. Asking what kind of writing this is, asking what was the context, what would the writer originally meant, what would the first readers have understood. Thirdly, asking about the content. What does the text actually say rather than what we thought it said or what I hoped it would say. And now we come to our last principle. Where does this text come in the canon of scripture? Now, the word canon is one perhaps you don't use normally. The canon of scripture is the rule for what is in scripture. The word canon is just a Greek word meaning a measuring rod. And from the early days, Christians saw the written scriptures as a kind of measuring rod for us, for, for our lives, for our faith. How do we know Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? How do we know that? Well, we, we look to measure our lives by the measuring rod, by the standard of scripture. And then the word came to uh, refer to, well, what is actually in the scriptures? What are scriptural writings and what is outside the scriptures? So when we talk about the canon of scripture, we mean the whole of the Bible. And the reason why that's important is that very often uh, writers in different parts of scripture refer back to or make use of things that come from the earlier part of scripture. And therefore, when we get to the New Testament, we find that very often New Testament writers are writing using allusions and echoes or quotations of the Old Testament. So we need to ask ourselves, well, what, how is this text functioning within the whole canon of scripture? How is the writer making use of things that have come earlier? There's one great example at the end of Matthew again, Matthew 25, a story that you'll know very well, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus is talking about when the Son of Man returns and he'll take his seat on the throne of his glory and become king. And then the nations will be gathered before the king. And it says he'll separate the nations as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And to the sheep on his right, he'll say, come, you that are blessed by my father, receive the inheritance set aside for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Uh, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they say, well, when did we do this? When did we do this, Master? He said, whenever you did this, for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. And it's very common for people to read this or for preachers to preach about this and say, this shows that we should care for the poor. The poor are the least of these brothers of Jesus. In fact, that reading hasn't been around very long. It's only been popular for the last 150 years or so. And actually, when you think about it, it doesn't make much sense because the sheep that those on the master's right are amazed. They can't believe it. They said, well, we don't realise we were doing this. But of course, any Christian who's read the Bible and knows we should care for the poor and maybe has even read this parable knows perfectly well 
that that's what we should be doing. And of course, Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you. And there's a constant theme through uh, the Gospels, through the teaching of the New Testament, through the whole of, of Scripture, that we should care for the poor. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching us here. Jesus never talks about the poor in general as the least of these, my brethren, my brothers and sisters. But he does use that language. He uses it earlier on in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is in a house and he's teaching and all the crowds are gathered round and he's healing and nobody can get in the door because the house is so crowded. And then Jesus's mother and brothers and sisters come and they try and find him and they can't get through. So people say to him, Jesus, Jesus, your mother, your brother and sisters, they're outside, they want you. And Jesus turns and says to them in Matthew 12, 50, who are my mother, my brothers and my sisters? those who do the will of God. It's those who receive Jesus' teaching and follow it. In other words, this is the language of disciples. When Jesus says, truly I tell you, whenever you do this to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me, he's talking not about us as disciples caring for the poor, he's talking about other people receiving us, his disciples, and says, in the way that they receive you, my disciples, so they are receiving me. And that's why he says, whenever you do this to the least of these, my brethren, you're doing it to me. And he's actually said that earlier on in the gospel. At one point he says, whoever gives you, my disciples, a cup of cold water, because you're my disciple, he will not lose his reward. Now that's got a very different challenge to it. What that says is how people respond to us, the disciples of Jesus, says something about how they actually receive Jesus. So I find that challenging. It makes me think, gosh, I'd better look very much like Jesus. Another example is, again, the text of Revelation. Revelation is absolutely saturated with allusions to the Old Testament. Unless we are familiar with our Old Testament, then it's very difficult to read the book of Revelation. But actually, this happens all the way through in the Gospels as well. Uh, many people have been reading through Mark chapter 1 uh, as the Gospel reading these last few weeks. And in Mark chapter 1, uh, it's very compressed text. It's got lots and lots of echoes of the Old Testament as well. So we read about Jesus being baptised by John in the Jordan and then being driven into the desert by the Spirit and then coming into Galilee and preaching the good news. And we read that when he was baptised and he's come out of the water, he's come out of the water onto the riverbank and he sees heaven torn open and he hears a voice from heaven say to him, you are my beloved son with who, with you I am well pleased. How do we interpret that? How do we make sense of that? Well, we might want to read it as simple affirmation. Jesus is affirmed by his Father. We might want to say, we have to be affirmed by God's love before we can be equipped to minister. And it does mean that, but actually it has enormous significance for understanding who Jesus is and how Mark is portraying him in his gospel. You see, that phrase, you are my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased, that has echoes of at least three really important Old Testament texts. The first is the story of Abraham in, a, in Genesis chapter 22, where God says to Abraham, take your son whom you love, your only son, and offer him as a sacrifice. So God isn't simply affirming Jesus' as son. He's actually saying, you're my son, and you're going to be presented as a sacrifice. That's certainly what Mark and Mark's listeners would have understood. Secondly, we read in Isaiah chapter 42, 
about the servant of the Lord. This is my servant whom I uphold, with whom I am well pleased. And this servant goes on to have a strange, mysterious function in redeeming God's people. By chapter 53, we see that this is the one on whom our sins are laid. This is the one by by whose stripes we are healed. But thirdly, today you've become my son is an echo from Psalm 2, verse 7. This is a psalm of royal enthronement. The king of Israel has become the son of God and is enthroned with power and will rule the nations with an iron rod. So three contrasting pictures. Jesus as God's son who will be sacrificed. Jesus as the servant of God who, with whom he well pleased, uh, who will redeem us. And Jesus as the royal king who is enthroned and one day will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So the moment we begin to see uh, the context of that saying within the whole canon of scripture, suddenly the text comes alive. Suddenly we see whole new dimensions to this. And we can see the paradox all through Mark's gospel of, of presenting Jesus both as the son of man who will suffer and die and be raised from the dead, but also the son of man who will come with the clouds and be enthroned with God and rule the nations and will one day return and his authority will be recognized. So then we have our four principles of how to interpret the Bible. We need to think about what kind of writing we're looking at. We need to think about its context. What would it have meant to the first writer and the first listeners to it? We need to look at the content. What does it actually say? And we need to think about where it sits in the canon of scripture. Now, I don't know how you respond to those ideas. They may be things that you're used to doing already. Or maybe they, you just thought, yeah, actually, that, those sort of things make sense to me. There is a danger that you can see these as a burden, as an intellectual exercise. They're not supposed to be. They're just supposed to be things that equip us to be, to be good, to be wise readers of the scriptures. And the scriptures come to us with a couple of promises. Paul says in writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness. The scriptures are given to us as a wonderful gift. They're God-breathed. They come to us by the spirit or the breath of God, the spirit or breath of God which inspired those who were first writing, and the spirit of God which brings these texts alive to us as well. And, and Paul's making a great promise there. He says, look, as you engage with the scriptures, as you read all these scriptures that are God-breathed, as you ask the spirit of God to enlighten you, then God will teach you. He will speak to you. He will train you and correct you. He'll tell you what you need to do how you need to understand these things, and he'll correct false ideas that you've got. And he'll give you everything you need to live faithfully for him. At the end of John's gospel, the writer says this, these things are written that you may believe and that believing you may have life. As we seek to interpret scripture well and wisely together, helping one another, drawing on the insights of others, God's promise to us is that he will shape us, he will transform us, he will make us more and more in the likeness of Jesus and enable us to live faithfully for him. When Paul was writing to the Christians in Philippi, he says this, Philippians 1 verse 6, God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God has a great plan for us to shape our lives and he wants to do that through our reading scripture well.